Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Eight great, terrific, wonderful, exciting new releases to the Warner Archive Collection are the subject of this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast. And this is going to be a memorable one because we have not one, not two, but three new Blu-ray releases, one of which has been long dreamed of by many, many people. And the other two are not exactly chopped liver either. First and foremost, we have an incredible restoration that was performed by the UCLA Film and Television Archive in association with the Film Foundation, with support from the George Lucas Family Foundation, and it is a 1933 Warner Brothers classic in two-color Technicolor, The Mystery of the Wax Museum. This is long-awaited, and we'll have a lot to talk about as we get into the podcast. And I should also mention that this is so good that even though we have this gorgeous Blu-ray, for those of you who still have DVD, there's a new DVD available of it, too. Also making its Blu-ray debut this week, Inside Daisy Clover from 1965, starring Natalie Wood, Christopher Plummer, Robert Mitchum, Roddy McDowell, and a host of others. Very interesting film. And last but certainly not least, Lucifer, season four on Blu-ray. This is uh, actually a show that's a particular favorite of mine. And the fourth season was the season that rescued it from near cancellation. And uh, Lucifer came back courtesy of Netflix. And now you can actually own it on a beautiful Blu-ray disc where it looks even better. We also have DVDs that are back in print, most notably the Charlie Chan Four Film Collection, which comes from the monogram era of Charlie Chan films and has Sidney Toller in Shadows Over Chinatown and Roland Winders taking over the role of the famed Charlie Chan in Docks of New Orleans, The Shanghai Chest, and The Golden Eye, each from 1948. We also have James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson in the only picture they made together, Smart Money, made in 1931. Then Cagney stars in The Mayor of Hell from 1933, G-Men, one of his biggest hits from 1935, and Cagney shares the screen with George Raft in Each Dawn, I Die, from 1939. So there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to have, hopefully, some time to read some email letters, since this is one of our pandemic-era safer-at-home podcasts, which we are recording via the miracle of remote technology. But I'm looking at Matt and Dan with even better clarity than if we were sitting in the studio at the studio. <laughs> Normally so, we just sit next to each other, but now I can see your guys' faces. So when I say right. something really smart, I can see it on you. Let's start our discussion with the big news, which is the Mystery of the Wax Museum. Made in 1933 at Warner Brothers, this was the last of the two-color Technicolor feature films that were made at Warner Brothers that finished out the commitment Warner Brothers had made to the Technicolor Corporation. And it was a big hit following in the footsteps of the prior Warner Brothers 
two-color Technicolor horror film, Dr. X, which was a huge hit in 1932. And this film reunites the director, Michael Curtiz, or Curtiz, depending how accurately we pronounce his last name. And you've got a wonderful cast with Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray as the leads. And in this case, also wonderful support from Glenda Farrell and Frank McHugh and incredible art direction. And this film was remade 20 years later in 3D as House of Wax and starring Vincent Price, which is available in 3D from the Warner Archive collection. And then it was remade in 2005 which Paris Hilton, which I refuse to discuss. But Mr. Wax, we see him because we just don't talk trash on the Warner Archive podcast. But in any event, this was a huge hit when it came out. And then Technicolor developed their their three-color Technicolor process, which made printing two-color Technicolor films basically impossible. And most of the studios chose to not take the negatives for their two-color films, which is why so many of them don't exist. And Mystery in the Wax Museum was thought to be a lost film until there was a discovery of Jack Warner's personal print in his vault around 1970. And from that print came other copies and showings at film uh, expos and eventually television syndication in 16 millimeter, all of which bore no resemblance to what we're now presenting on Blu-ray, which is a pristine restoration that was so meticulously done that even missing words of dialogue due to splices were found. Our friends and colleagues at UCLA and the Film Foundation really outdid themselves with this. And to be able to present this on Blu-ray is very, very exciting for Warner Archive. And Warner Brothers is proud of our long association with UCLA, which goes back to 1979. All of the studio's nitrate holdings in 1979 were moved to UCLA for safekeeping. And we've collaborated on many little projects, but this is the first major collaboration between the studio, UCLA, and the Film Foundation, and we certainly hope it won't be the last. I think we should talk about, aside from the film being lost and found, just how great a movie this is, and Dan loves it even if Alan Jenkins isn't in it. Well, you know, it's got Frank McHugh, so, you know, it's it's an okay substitute. And it's also funny that you mentioned Alan Jenkins because what is sort of remarkable about Dr. X and uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum is that they're both thoroughly Warner Brothers pictures of the period. In fact, in both cases, two-thirds of the film are like hard-boiled reporter movies, and it, then we get into horror. It's very easy to see on how this was Warner Brothers' take on a Universal Monster movie. And the Universal Monster movies are, for people who are alive today, kind of genetically imprinted in in our code and it's in the code of horror films today and what really strikes me i mean it's and you know the whole technical achievement end of this film would make this film worthy of talking about forever I mean, the yeah, and without going into too much detail it's essentially a 
fire wipes out uh, the dream wax museum of a genius wax sculptor and he's making a comeback and bodies are disappearing and Glenda Farrell plays a reporter who's basically told you're fired unless you come up with a story and these two threads combine in the person of Glenda Farrell's roommate Faye Ray now the climax of this film from a technical <laughs> art direction viewpoint has never really been able to be seen or appreciated as you can now, thanks to this restoration. And it's yes. truly astonishing. Dan, now, now I'm just skipping a little bit, especially for that last scene. But you know how we've been going through the classic catalog and almost seeing like the movies that Bill Finger saw? Right. I mean, this movie screamed to me serial superhero film yeah. more than any other monster movie. Yeah. Because especially with like the reporters and the noir and this this set piece at the end, I was like, this feels like I mean, Batman sixty six sort of took it to a little like campy, but this was like it was almost James Bond as well. well I mean, this is pure supposition on my point, but I swear, just from watching these films and knowing the Bill Finger Batman so yeah. well that Warner Brothers was the huge influence on those comics. Warner Brothers was a huge influence on everyone. True. I mean, by watching Warner Archive movies, you can't help but now associate those two together because it's almost like we're able to tap into the zeitgeist at the time with these things coming out. And by seeing it in this incredible technical presentation, which is astounding and revelatory. I mean, like, it's like its own version of German expressionism. Right, and, you know, absolutely. Like, yeah. The limits of the, the color palette and the work, like, this kind of thing almost couldn't be replicated, like, in this way until more modern lab or even computer techniques come in. Like, it, this would be hard to make now look like this. That's absolutely true, because even though we had tools... 10, 15 years ago to deal with the still manual process of removing dirt and scratches, there was far more work that needed to be done. You basically had this battered print that had belonged to Jack Warner that was in the Warner vault. And I don't know if it was the AFI or another organization that initially gave it a, you know, like it was big news when I was a child. I was a child who read Variety. So uh, I remember reading that this lost film had been found. And I didn't end up seeing it until it ran on WPIX, Channel yeah. 11, 11 Live, <laughs> when it went into syndication through United Artists. And it did not look very good, but they had to make a dupe negative off this print and then 16 millimeter reductions. That's no way to see this film. They did show this print, this Warner print, at the New York Film Festival at the time and at a few other select locations. But that right. added to the wear on the print. So the print has Q marks uh, in it. It has, as I said, missing frames. Uh, it had a lot of wear. And also, Technicolor prints in the two-color era right. had a varnish put on them. And there was a lot going against being able to create the two-color look. 
Now, to be fair, it was in the late 80s that Mystery of the Wax Museum came out on VHS, and the source for that was a 35-millimeter print that had been made from a dupe negative that was made from the Warner print. So you were two generations away. But whoever did that transfer for VHS stayed true to the two-color palette of green and red. You don't have any blues or yellows in two-color Technicolor, which is why it looks the way that it does. It never looked realistic, but it can look quite beautiful depending on how the film is lit, how the film is shot. This film in particular lends itself to the process and the early one-inch videotape masters that were created in the late 80s for VHS and that were shown on television gave you a fairly faithful color reproduction of what the film kind of looked like. And then in the mid to late 90s, it was remastered. I believe, if my memory is correct, it might have been for Laserdisc or for television. But whoever was doing the color tried to make it look like a contemporary color picture. And Mm. uh, it's rather shameful. If my memory is correct, I think the Laserdisc came from the same master that was used on on VHS, but what we had on our DVD and Blu-ray of House of Wax with Mystery of the Wax Museum as a special feature is from that awful transfer, and people have been bemoaning how the colors were all wrong, and clearly whoever worked on that had no idea how two-color Technicolor is supposed to look, and the people that worked on this restoration knew exactly how the film was supposed to look. And everybody involved made this absolutely meticulous. It is sharp. It is clean. It is clear. It's gorgeous to look at. And I also have to shout out to the sound restoration. Audio quality is really remarkable because Warner Brothers, in my opinion, had the best sound department starting in the 30s, really through the 60s. uh, There was a distinctive Warner sound and you hear uh, dynamics in the audio you wouldn't have been able to hear when the film premiered in 1933. This is a true restoration. And we're so lucky that we have Blu-ray and the capacity of the 1080p picture and the lossless audio. It's really a gift to the diehard film fan and to horror film fans. Jack Warner was not a fan of horror films, but when he (laughs) saw the money that Dracula and Frankenstein were making, he was a fan of money money and that's how Dr. X came to be. And Dr. X was such a hit that they brought back most of the team and a Technicolor camera for Mystery of the Wax Museum. And I want to debunk a myth. Whereas Dr. X was shot twice, there was a black and white separate version shot, which does exist and which was the circulating version of the movie 
until a color print of that was found in the 80s. Mystery of the Wax Museum was only shot once, only shot in Technicolor, and it was from this print that everything was seen until now because this new restoration is actually taken from two sources. The prime source is the Jack Warner print, but a collector had found some kind of French work print. And it was some of it was silent and some of it had English audio and it had French subtitles in a very strange way at the bottom of the screen. But it allowed for the people working on the restoration to use certain shots that needed to be fixed. It had a different color palette, and the color isn't as vivid. But the net result is painstaking restoration. So hats off to Scott McQueen and all of his staff and our friend Todd Weiner and all the people at UCLA that oversaw this. There were a lot of people that contributed to the creative result of this, but I also want to extend thanks to our colleague Stephen Anastasi, who oversees our global media assets and preservation, because Stephen opened the door which had been locked shut by other people, Stephen opened the door for collaboration with UCLA, and we all need to collaborate together in order to save these films and make them look as good as they can be and make sure that you're able to buy them with the glory of physical media and put them on your shelf. And now you can do that with Mystery of the Wax Museum. I also want to call out the fact that we created special features for this disc. What? what? We have to uh, note that UCLA had done a before and after restoration piece. And thanks to Constantine Nazar, who's been a longtime friend and producer to the company going back to our launch of Looney Tunes in 2003, Constantine worked with Scott McQueen to provide a narrative of the before and after piece that's on the disc you also get two commentaries not one but two that are remarkable because they're so different and so informative you have scott mcqueen who is the head of film preservation at ucla and who oversaw this project and who was also a film historian and incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly articulate in talking about this and then Equally wonderful is the commentary from Alan K. Rohde, who is the film historian and author, particularly the author of a massive, huge, detailed biography of director Michael Curtiz. An excellent book. And both an excellent book. And uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Rohde at the Burbank Public Library on behalf of the studio when his book came out. And we spent time talking about this film. But their contributions of the commentary are not the end of the special features because we also have a wonderful featurette that is an interview with Victoria Riskin, the daughter of famed screenwriter Robert Riskin, and the beautiful Faye Ray was her mother the star of this film. And Victoria Riskin is a wonderful 
She is an incredible recall and spoke eloquently and passionately about her mother and about this film and her mother's other films. And this whole package put together is really just a film buff's dream come true. And we're happy to bring it to you. So look for Mystery of the Wax Museum wherever your computer is in the room that you now sit and order it. Our next film we're going to talk about is another Warner Brothers classic, but from a later era that takes place actually around the same time that Daisy Clover was, uh, you know, being filmed. It's a film that was made in 1965 about Hollywood in the 30s and the Warner Brothers studio is the setting with, of course, another studio name put over the Warner name for the telling of this inside Daisy Clover tale starring Natalie Wood, Robert Redford, Christopher Plummer, Ruth Gordon. It was written by Gavin Lambert, who was a Hollywood historian himself. I believe he also wrote the screenplay, if I'm not mistaken. He did. And... One of the most wonderful things about this movie that we have to uh, also shout out to is the great late Andre Previn, who wrote an amazing score for this film, including some really wonderful songs that are useful in moving the plot forward. It's not a musical, but there are some interesting uses of musical performance in this film to drive the story forward. And it's really a showcase for the brilliance of Natalie Wood, who was, I believe, if if I'm I'm accurate, I think she was not even 30 when she made this movie. I think she was in her late 20s, probably her very late 20s. But it's it's an incredible performance. And she'd already been in the business for probably 20 years at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, right. and it's and it's a story that, that had to have had particular resonance for Natalie Wood because it's about how Hollywood chews up child stars, which did, is what it did to her. Yeah, I mean, she right. came out on top of her game, but she had an incredibly difficult childhood, as a lot of the child stars did. By um, doing it through the lens of a period piece, and it's it's 1965, so we're getting very close to like the end of the classic. I mean, the studio system was already collapsing and stuff, but it's an interesting reflection on the modern movement of uh, and, and actors coming in and actors starting to get more power, but, but then showing that contrasted against uh, the 30s and, and and the roles. And it's also interesting that he doesn't have a huge part, but he's absolutely terrific in this movie is uh, Roddy McDowell, who was Roddy also McDowell a child star, but he had a, a much happier child stardom. But, and, that, and Robert... That's actually true. Actually, Natalie Wood fought to get Robert Redford in that part. And Ruth Gordon, too. And in both cases, it launched and relaunched careers. There was recently a documentary about Natalie Wood on HBO, and Robert Redford is interviewed in it and talks about how Natalie Wood was so integral in making sure he got that part in the movie. And we should mention that it's directed by Robert Mulligan, who we were just talking yep. about on a recent podcast. And it was produced by 
his frequent producing partner and soon-to-be standalone director of incredible genius, Alan J. Pakula. So this is really quite a unique film. And it wasn't the first time that Natalie Wood had worked with Pakula and Mulligan. Uh, they'd previously worked together in Love with the Proper Stranger at Paramount. And that got Natalie Wood an Oscar nomination. So she wanted to work with them again. This was a real quality production. And I also want to shout out to the Santa Monica Pier. Right. Uh, which is a beautiful location in this. Again, this is the, the thing with the Blu-ray. And if you're familiar with where Santa Monica Pier is probably now, now the home of the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. But here it, <laughs> it stands in for a down and out pier. But I, I just kept looking at it and how all of the old buildings there, you know, are still there. And of course, if anybody lived on that pier, it would probably that trailer she lives in would be uh, at least four million dollars today. And Natalie Wood, I just want to point out, like, she channels a 15-year-old so incredibly well in this that, George, as you were saying, you're trying to, you have to remember that she's an adult in this. And that always sells, it's like the energy and the effervescence that she she brought to the screen. And also, as we mentioned, how she was integral in bringing all this other talent to it, it really sort of says something about her power at this point in the Hollywood process and that she essentially... Uh, was a, a producer, uh, she, or she had the power of a producer. This film was not a box office blockbuster when it came out. It was a modest performer, and it, it has a, I would say, almost a split reputation. Some people really love it, and some people don't like it at all. We have had an enormous outcry for years for people to you know, saying, oh, you've got to put that out on Blu-ray. But one of the things that makes the film feel a little disjointed was, and I don't know if it was Jack Warner himself, but somebody got out a pair of shears and right. cut out almost a half hour from the movie before it opened. And there may have been more like, you know, the she's married off to uh, Robert Redford's character in the film, and they weren't allowed in the production code to deal with homosexuality on the screen, certainly not in 1965, right. but it's implied that she's married to uh, Redford and that he's gay, and that's the kind of thing they just weren't ready to deal with in 1965, so that... That might have been, I don't know anything about the specific details that led to the severe editorial lacerations, but I know they happened. And I think that may be responsible for why the film feels like there's something missing. But nonetheless, I remember the first time I saw it, I was so impressed, if for nothing else, just the way it photographs the Warner Brothers lot. And the way it gives you a view into filmmaking of the 60s as well as the 30s. And yeah. also, just to sort of compare Christopher Plummer in this to the other big film he made that year, Sound of Music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that guy is amazing. He is such a, you know, spoiler villain. Yeah. Not no spoiler at all. But what an interesting role and and complex. And I, I didn't actually see the developments of uh, what happened in the film coming. So I was really drawn in by uh, all the actors and the performances. And 
a little bit of the 60s hairdos on the 30s fashion. But other than that, it, it, it was a wonderful smorgasbord. that excites me about every podcast we do is that a lot of these films are films I know that you may not have seen, and I'm excited to see what your reaction is going to be. I love seeing these blind from Blu-ray, and I, I, I'm pretty sure, was this on the streaming service way back when? And I, Because yes. I remember it being there, but I just, I just didn't get to it, and so I was excited when this was coming out. And I'm actually glad I waited because the Blu-ray presentation is is really just quite wonderful. That was the nearly 20-year-old HD master that's been circulating around television. So as we always do, it's a brand new master that is stunning. Uh, it's immaculate and the colors are gorgeous. And yeah. it really also captures the way Warner Technicolor films looked in the 60s. Mm. They had a very distinct look. And it's just something that I'm very proud of. And I think that a lot of people were really thrilled when we, they heard that we were putting this out. And uh, I hope people enjoy it. Now, our third Blu-ray, what a luxury to say that, uh, <laughs> of this broadcast, a uh, podcast, I should say, is something that is in fact, a television show, but it's not your average television show, as Tom Ellis stars as Lucifer. This is the fourth season of Lucifer, and it's available on Blu-ray and DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. But we've been bringing you the Blu-rays of Lucifer from the very beginning, since season one, since we always saw the devil in the details. You know, this is the season that came back from the dead, thanks to uh, <laughs> thanks to Netflix and the fans and the huge outcry because it was an incredibly popular show that was canceled for reasons we're not privy to. And then Netflix correctly ascertained, like, no, this is still an ongoing thing, and they helped resurrect it. And the fortunate thing that comes from making the move from regular broadcast to streaming is we get, without abandoning the core formula of quirky, weird, funny murder of the week and the two of them investigating cases, we get extra story time in every episode is longer than 42 minutes. And yeah. there is a, a very tight, ongoing inner story arc throughout all 10 of these episodes. So it's one big story broken up into very entertaining chapters. It Plus, we get an extended opening on the first episode in which we get to see Tom Ellis perform Creep by Radiohead and it's spectacular. <laughs> he has a really great singing voice, yeah. but he moves like a professional dancer. As we find out later this season. And also these episodes from season four don't get locked into that 40-minute length. Yeah, I, Some yeah, of them are longer. They tell the story in the time that it, it takes to do, and it really confronts a lot of details that were kind of glossed over in the earlier seasons. I love the fact that it still feels, it, it reminds me a little bit of the procedural with supernatural combination that made forever such uh, yeah. a favorite of mine. We talk about that every once in a while, but the supporting cast of this show, everybody is top notch and Interestingly, this series originally was shot mostly, even though it takes place in L.A., 
it was mostly shot in Vancouver for a while. And for season right. three, they brought it to the Warner Brothers lot and Los Angeles locations. And I was walking on the soundstage <laughs> where it's Lucifer's, uh, you know, Mr. Morningstar's apartment, probably about a week before the cancellation was announced. And I was like, oh, darn, I was just on the, the what a great set that is. And then, you know, within... I think it was probably less than two weeks. Maybe my memory is failing me, but it was like very quickly that Netflix scooped it up because the fans went ballistic on social media saying, how can you cancel Lucifer? There is a fifth season that is about to be dropped on the waiting fans, including myself, and that we will eventually release. And from what I understand it looks very likely there will be a sixth. So that was, of course, pre-COVID that was looking right, very likely. Right. So I'm hoping it'll still stay the same. But this is uh, really a, a tremendous, tremendous show. And uh, it really looks great on Blu-ray. That's the thing you don't get when you watch it streaming you're looking at a little file and at a, a varying bit rate it's not going to give you the quality i'm fortunate to have a friend who actually works on the show as the crew and this is not going to be any plot information but from talking to him i can tell you that they even upped their game for season five from a technical standpoint he says some of the stuff they pulled off was just even to him and he's an old vet in the business was amazing so, Dan, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'm, now we're relying on, I'll call it um, entertainment hearsay. But the interesting thing about this season is how you almost feel them slide into the comfortability of being, uh, you know, like a Netflix uh, binge show. I think that because as I'm watching it, I kind of because I've been watching the Blu-rays. So I kind of forgot. And then I was like, ooh, there's a naughty word. And then I'm like, ooh, this feels different. And then the episodes yeah. are like sliding one into another. And I'm like, and then it was like, I think the third episode, I'm like, oh, this went to Netflix. Like I just remembered, but it's like so subtle. It's the same show, but it's like they've, it's almost like they expanded it. And so it's very exciting to hear that they're yeah. expanding the possibilities more. The reason why Tom Ellis has the gift that he does is that he's from Wales. So I have to feel <laughs> something, some of the doctor who filming down, yeah. the, down the street from him must have rubbed off on him or something. It, yeah. It's the only part of the UK that was founded by elves. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Definitely. That's, that's the only explanation. Most beautiful language on earth. I just storyline wise, just a quick mention that uh, this season picks up from where last season left off in oh, that yeah. Chloe has finally seen Lucifer's true form and knows now that he's never been lying to her. He really is the devil. And then a further complication arrives in the form of Lucifer's ex, Eve. Yes, that Eve. It sounds like You'll, a complication. And as a matter of fact, there's even an episode called All About Eve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, like, not do that. So this is also a perfect time for us to mention the DVDs that are now back in print. This was a best-selling four-disc collection with four movies on it. The movies are so short that they fit on two discs with great quality. 
And uh, this is the Charlie Chan 4 film collection that was originally released uh, in 2013. It went out of print, and now it's back in print. And Sidney Toller is Charlie Chan for the first film, Shadows Over Chinatown. And Roland Winters assumes the role for actually three of the penultimate Charlie Chan monogram epics, Docks of New Orleans, Shanghai Chest, and The Golden Eye. So if you don't already have this collection, you're going to want to own it because these Charlie Chan films are just a lot of fun. We also have Warner Gangster films with Cagney and Edward G. Robinson together in Smart Money. They're only filmed together. Uh, The Mayor of Hell, 1933 with James Cagney, which was remade a couple of times, uh, including Mm -hmm. as Hell's Kitchen with Ronald Reagan and the Dead End Kids. And then G-Men with James Cagney from 1935, which was the postcode Jimmy Cagney becoming a good guy. And what? Each Dawn I Die, 1939, with Cagney joining forces with George Raft. They're all Warner classics, and all the discs are stuffed with extras and lots of fun. Highly recommended. And we also recommend that in these days of confinement and isolation, if you want to download some instant gratification that you go to the Warner Archive room on iTunes where you can download to buy or rent lots of our great classic films from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, along with television series from Warner Brothers Television, animated series, and you can find our more than 400 free podcasts, which date back to the golden era of the aughts, 2009, when we started. Two decades Uh, ago. That's right. So we recommend you go to iTunes.com backslash Warner Archive or go to the iTunes movie store, click on classics, look for the swoosh at the bottom of the page that says Warner Archive, and it will take you into the room. And uh, there are promotions often going on in sales. It's a great place to visit. And yes, I would want to live there. We normally have this last part of the podcast where we read letters that we ask you to send through the mail. But since we're working remotely from the office, we're asking you to send them via email. Matt, what is the email address that people can use to send us letters? It's very complex. Are you ready? Podcast at WB.com. Okay, that's very hard, but I'll try to remember it. All right, so we got, uh, when we initially uh, sent out our post-COVID alert, we got so many emails, and uh, we've been trying to get through them. So these are emails from uh, last month, and we're just going to go through these rapidly because uh, a lot of people did not write them in the form of a letter. So I, I haven't read any of these yet. So here we go. This one is from Dylan, and he says... Hello, Warner Archive. I'm writing you in response to your post about questions for the podcast. Any update for Bill Gunn's stop or Frank Perry's last summer or any chance for a Blu-ray of The Shuttered Room? Thank you very much. Dylan. Bill Gunn's stop we would love to release. We are missing crucial documentation that will allow us to release the film. And we've been trying to do this now for over 10 years. We've got everything we need except the documentation. And until we have that, we're kind of up a tree. Last summer is 
in another 10-year odyssey. We can't move forward on that because we are missing the original negative of one reel. And uh, it's pretty critical that we find that so we can release it definitively. Now you say, how could Warner Brothers lose such a thing? Well, this was not a Warner Brothers film. It was an allied artist film. And uh, they're the ones that seem to have misplaced the last reel of the film. So until we solve that riddle, there's not going to be anything in the middle because we got to do it right. And uh, we continue to look under every nook and cranny. It's probably, you know, in a can of one episode of the Waltons or something. I don't know. It, I thought but it was anyway, that's the reason for that. And a Blu-ray of The Shuttered Room, like 7,900 other possibilities. It's something in the library that might see a release on Blu-ray someday, but we have nothing to announce at the moment. Okay. This one is from Drew. Hi, team. Uh, would it be possible if you could tell me about releasing the following? Well, Wonder Woman 1970 series on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can tell you that that is being released by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment with brand new masters at retailers. Um, Not coming from Warner Archive collection. Oh, here's one for... Uh, Supergirl, the director's cut, but on Blu-ray, uh, which we can't do. Uh, I'll, I'll go through the rest of them. The Flash for 1990 series, Lethal Weapon 1 to 3 director's cuts, Cast a Deadly Spell from HBO in 1991, and Full Eclipse uh, 1993. Thanks, Drew. The situation of HBO library content and our being able to release it is still in the transition phase from the transfer of HBO Home Video to Warner Brothers Home Entertainment handling everything. So we know there's a lot of juicy content in the back catalog that has been neglected that would be perfect for blue. So uh, there are things to look forward to. All right, let's move on to the next letter. This one is from Tom. Hi, hope you're all safe and well. Do you think Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid will ever get a Blu-ray release? Thanks, Tom. I think it will, but I can't say anything more than that at this time. That's good. Uh, this is from Peter. Thanks for the great podcast and making wonderful old and underseen movies available on DVD and Blu-ray. I have a question about the 1950 film Outrage, directed by Ida Lupino. As far as I'm aware, this is the only one of her films as a director that has not been released on home video of some sort. It's also one of her best. Since it was distributed by RKO originally, does your company have the rights? If so, are there entanglements or some other issue delaying a release? I've been hoping for a while that something is in the works and finally decided to take this opportunity to ask directly. Thanks for all you do. Sincerely, Peter from San Antonio. There are problems with the rights as well as the film elements on that title. So that's about all I can say on that. Unfortunately, that's the situation. Okay, this one is from Carl. Hi, any info on if there are any future plans to release the brilliant and criminally underrated 70s Dustin Hoffman starring heist flick Straight Time on Blu-ray? I'd love to upgrade my Warner Archive DVD version to a Blu-ray. This film deserves love. Thanks. We've gotten a lot of requests for it, and they have not been unnoticed. That's all I'll say. Good answer. This is from Ralph from London. 
When are you going to release Ken Russell's Listomania on Blu-ray? Please, 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 please. Well, we released it on DVD with a new master, but that master would not be of Blu-ray quality. We would have to probably go back to the negative on that one, and that's going to be costly. So while there's nothing to announce at this time, that's not to say that it can't happen. We'll do two more. This is from Jay. Why did it take until 2012 for a restoration of Why Be Good uh, to start when the film was discovered in the mid-1990s? How do you react when you discover a lost or previously incomplete film? Well, we didn't know anything about that being extant at the studio. And I had nothing to do with the discovery of it or being informed about it, that happened with someone else at the studio who no longer works at the studio. But when we did find out about it, we put it into high gear. And because thankfully, Ron Hutchinson of the Vitaphone Project had the audio that would make a release possible, we did put it out on DVD through the Warner Archive very happily. It just brings up the point of when people are in the archival community, they need to communicate with each other. And some people are really good about that. And some people, maybe not so good. But it's not about ego. It's about collaboration. And we're all in it together. So the more we help each other, the more we can do things together. Why Be Good's release is a result of people collaborating together. All right. This one is from Taylor, and he has a question for the archive. Hey there. Has it ever been discussed to release the complete series of Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, or other shows with a lot of episodes? I've noticed Time Life has started selling the first few seasons of Dallas. Love the podcast and the exceptional diverse selection released every month. month. Thanks. Regards, Taylor. Well, my God, these are questions that no one's ever asked us. <laughs> for those who aren't already, for, for the for the four billionth time, we will let you know that Falcon Crest and Knott's Landing are laden with clearance issues, and Knott's Landing and Falcon Crest also have, they require very expensive remastering. I think that with the potential new avenues of distribution that seem to be opening up with the mm -hmm. growing technology, that it wouldn't be impossible. A task of something like Knott's Landing, which is, I think, 14 seasons? Oh, it's, uh, it's forever. It's very, very daunting. But unfortunately, we have nothing to announce at, that, at this time. But it is being discussed in higher quarters by various divisions, because obviously we know there's a huge fan base out there worldwide. I have a quick addition, just as long as we're answering sure. questions for the 10 millionth time. I've been getting a, I'm not, we've been getting a lambasted on a certain social Imagine media. Imagine that! Yeah. Is it because certain, the monkey? No, no yeah. it's because we haven't put out Brothers Grimm on a Smilebox Blu-ray. Oh, are you asking, Dan? Yes. The only thing I can say is you should never give up hope. Things that we thought were impossible one day became possible another day. Right now, we have nothing to announce. 
Excellent. All right, here's the last one. This one is called Burning Question from Bruce. Question. WB has released many of their TV movies from the past, with one glaring exception. Banyan, the Robert Forrester detective movie, is a really well-done film with a terrific cast. Any chance this will ever get released? Are there legal issues preventing the release? Thanks for the opportunity. That is exactly the problem. There are very expensive clearance issues that need to be resolved for both the TV movie as well as the short-running television series that followed. I've tried, and I've tried. But again, you never know when a window may open. Okay, wait, right so now, so we can't release it. All right. I did find the last one. That all of these were sent to us on Tuesday, April 7th. So I found the last Tuesday, April 7th one. Ready? Hi. Any plans to release the unbearable lightness of being on Blu-ray? Thanks, Scott. It has been discussed, but nothing is happening with that at the present time. Whew. All right. Well, that was it. That was a lot of questions we got through. I know. It feels uh, like people waiting online at Comic-Con. <laughs> oh, it, it, it was. It was. It was. But it was good. It feels good, at least to me, to because those were sitting in my mailbox for so long that I was like, wait, I'm trying to see. That's it. Well, wow. that wraps up this Warner Archive Collection podcast. But fear not, we're going to be back really soon with another one because there's so much going on despite the pandemic. And despite our working remotely, the work continues, the releases continue, and we'll have a lot of exciting new information to share with you in the near future. So until that time, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. You can go to some nice warm place, and I don't mean California. And on that bear state note, please look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast. We thank you for listening. Thank you.